So to begin, and Kevin, you won't have this on your slide, but again, you know, sometimes I just, I'm back there praying about what I'm speaking on and what I'm, and things come to mind, and sometimes I just have to add that to what I already have, and so there's this text from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a, in the Old Testament, was called a major prophet, so Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah would be the three major prophets in the Old Testament. The minor prophets would be like Micah or Hosea, uh, books like that. Jeremiah lived during the time of the Assyrian capture of uh, Israel. Um, he tried for most of his uh, profession as a prophet to warn Israel about their sin, to warn them about what was going to happen to them. And they refused to not only listen to him, but they abused him because of what he would say. And that abuse was pretty significant. Um, so much so that you might ask the question, well, why, why would you continue on? Why would you continue to try and warn people who don't seem to care? But Jeremiah wanted to be true to the, the calling that God had for him, the work that God had prepared for him to do. And so I'm sure during some of those times in which while he was being abused by his own people, he wondered if it was all worth it. Is it worth it? Should I still do this even though Israel isn't listening to me? Should I still go ahead and try to warn them about their danger, about what could happen to them? And so in Jeremiah 29, he says this. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. What remarkable words from a man who was treated the way that he was treated by his own people, trying to warn them from this impending danger because of their own, own actions. And despite what they did to him, he had every reason in the world to walk away, but chose not to do that, and instead articulates these words. That if he, chewed, if he decided that he would not do this anymore, then he could not endure it. He had to fulfill the calling and the purpose for which God created him. He had to fulfill it. Let me read it to you again. I had this committed to memory. Let me see if I can remember it. But if I say I will not remember or mention him anymore, nor speak in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, and I cannot hold it in, and I cannot endure it. Uh, I got it almost all of it. But uh, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Jeremiah 29. Now, let me just say this to you. 
as we talk about this overarching thing called constancy. Because remember, I'm talking about, you know, recalibrating our, our life, recalibrating our heart. And the third part of the, 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 the three main topics that I've talked about in terms of recalibrating, repentance, guarding our heart, and constancy, this idea of constancy. Here was a guy right there who remained constant. He did not surrender. He believed so powerfully. It was so embedded in his nature of who he was as a person that he had to be obedient and faithful to what God had called him to do, the purpose for which he had been created. Now, let me ask us this question. How many here could articulate these words of Jeremiah for themselves? How many people here are so convinced of their purpose, of their calling, of what it is that they are supposed to do, that if they don't do it, it burns? Or maybe the, the first question I should ask is, how many here even know what their calling and purpose is. Let me just say that when we lack constancy of purpose, constancy of calling, of knowing what our calling is, then we are highly, highly susceptible to being diverted in any number of ways so that whatever we have to offer is minimal. The constancy isn't there. It's a hit or miss thing. So, how many here are convinced that they know what the purpose is in their life, the calling that God has for them? How many here know that? And if you don't know, if you aren't sure, why? When we go to work, is there any confusion about what our job is when we go to work? I mean, you might be confused about some of the minuscule kinds of things, but in terms of like what you've been hired for, I mean, if, if you went to work and said, I'm always confused about what, I am, what I'm supposed to do, then either that's a very bad place to work or you get fired. If you're hired as a skilled person in your place of employment, but you find yourself, like, let's say you're supposed to, like, uh, work the books, the financial books, or... Um, you're supposed to do sales, but you seem to be attracted more to doing custodial kinds of things, and that's where you gravitate towards. How long would you be there for? I mean, the clarity that we have to have in our place of employment is pretty clear. The clarity that we have as parents, for example, about what our responsibilities are to raise our children is also pretty clear. 
And we can't afford not to know what the fundamental responsibilities are for being a parent. But why? Why has the church historically for 2,000 years struggled the, the, the average person? Why? Why have we struggled with what our purpose and what our calling is? Well, there are. Now, there are all those distractions, exactly. And so, but I remember driving down this, I forget what road here. Go, no, the one that goes in front of your house. Uh, Foot Street. Foot Street, yeah, thanks. Just had a mental block there. I was driving there several years ago, and there was a person living in one of the houses. Apparently, they had like a three, four-year-old child who was playing early in the morning. It was a cool morning out in the street. Um, now, I think if you're a parent and you have a three or four-year-old child, if your child is playing in the road early in the morning, that's kind of cool, like in late fall, you're probably distracted. You have forgotten what your calling and what your purpose is as a parent. And that for most parents, we would think that, you know, I mean, things happen, but that's kind of a big thing. I can remember when I was in high school, I wanted to, I was trying to figure out what it was that I should do when I went to, to college. What did God have for me? What was his plan for my life? What were the gifts that he had uh, placed within me that I could exercise as an adult? And so uh, I, deter I decided that, that because of my experience in campus life, and how life-giving that was to me. Uh, how, in many respects, it saved my life. That I wanted to go into campus life or a profession like that so that I could give back to young people that were in similar circumstances as my own. So I went to camp, I went into to Geneva College and I, 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 I majored in Bible and I majored in sociology. And, um, and while I didn't go into campus life, I did go into youth ministry. Those were among the hardest times of my life. You know, when you deal with chaos, i.e. the lives of teenagers, not all of them, but many, chaos has a way of rubbing off on you, right? You're, you're, you know, you're, you're not going to clean out a pig pen without getting a little bit of pig stuff on you. That's just how it is. And that's how many of my kids were that I worked with. They had a lot of problems. So... So you had that, and, and then it's all high maintenance. There's no way that when you're in youth ministry that you do 40 hours a week. 
you're up early because kids are available then, before breakfast, before school, or breakfast before school. Then you go and you, you support their programs in the evening. So 60 hours was pretty standard, you know, and more. And then you're married and you start having your family and children are expensive. And in youth ministry, you're not going to make a lot of money normally. And then you have people that all, you know, look, if, they're, if you're a youth minister and there are 100 people in that church, you have 100 different opinions about what job they think you should be doing. So there's a whole host of things. And there were times in my life when I'm like, why am I doing this? I mean, it can be so thankful, thankless. And it seems as if you're just spinning your wheels all the time. But then I remember Jeremiah 29, 20 verse 9. And in my heart of hearts and the core of who I am as a person, that's what I was supposed to be. And here's the interesting thing. And this is kind of like the backhanded blessing that comes from it. Let me just say to this, this to you, that if you're not sure what your calling, what your purpose is, it usually has something to do with you fixing something that was broken in you. Not always. Or you doing for something, something for somebody that they can't do for themselves. So it brings you. So for me, my work in ministry was largely, have you ever heard the word catharsis? It's a $64 word in psychology. A catharsis means to do something for others in such a way that as you bring healing to their life, your life is healed in return. So all the healing that I needed when I was growing up came to me when I gave to others what I did not get myself. And it was so fulfilling. So even though it was difficult at times, at the end, it was a joy. So over the course of my life, in my calling, it's been a challenge at time to remain constant. Because there are a lot of distractions. And you have to punch through those distractions and remember not only what you're supposed to do, but who you are. And let me just say, there is some truth that you always do what you always are. You always do what you always are. And so if you don't do what you are, then it can be a pretty empty and fleeting life. So without regular and consistent constancy, there is duplicity of the heart 
hypocrisy in action, carnality of the heart, demise and failure of faith, and alienation from God. For 2,000 years, the lack of constancy is responsible for almost every judgment in the Old... I'm sorry. When you look at the scriptures, the lack of constancy is responsible for almost every judgment in the Old Testament and every warning and admonition in the New Testament. For 2,000 years, the absence of constancy is behind every major personal failure. It is behind every failure of the institutional church, of every Christian who has ever lived the lack of constancy. And if you don't know who and what you are, and if we don't practice what we are, and if we aren't passionate about what we are, then constancy is a pretty elusive thing. Have you ever encountered a person that had this like really strong presence and the presence was comprised of a person who was just really focused? And maybe not just focused on one thing, but you got this sense in the whole of what they were, that they knew exactly what they were about. And it's like they have this aura that's around them, and you can't break into it. You could never divert them from what it is that they're about. They're that strong. We need to be people like that. That when people walk through that back door there, they encounter a group of people who exude purpose. That are able to transmit this sense of calling. They know who they are. They know whom they belong to. And they are passionate. And if they don't do it, it's like a fire shut up in their bones. And they are weary of holding it in and they cannot endure it. So, today then, I want to talk about, and last week I talked about the body for a bit, but I want to talk about um, what it means for constancy to be a part. In other words, if we're going to be constant in our faith, what it means for us to be constant in our purpose and calling. So, <clears throat> We've talked so far about constancy in giving God glory, constancy in our belonging to God, constancy in terms of the body of Christ, and knowing what part of the body we are in. When I sent that question to you this morning so that you could talk about it, the 40 minutes of fellowship, we can't afford to have confusion about what part of the body we belong to. We can't afford not to include people who have a particular gift that they bring to the body that makes the body of Christ better? <clears throat> if they really do have that gift, I mean, there are some people who think they have a gift when clearly, according to the entire body, they do not have that gift, right? Like some people cannot sing. They think they can sing, but they can't sing. You know? And so, you know, maybe some gentle nudging from the body. Uh, you point them into a different direction. <laughs> I mean, we've had to do that some, and that's okay. 
So there are six general principles uh, here, and so we'll be talking about the constancy in our workmanship. The constancy in our workmanship that God has called us to. So we read in Ephesians 2.10, so turn to your Bibles if you like to Ephesians 2.10, and this is where we're, we're going to be talking about this particular thing for the balance of our time together. I, I just think that this is a text that you could put on a little card, put it on the bathroom mirror beside the door as you're walking out. This is a phylactery kind of text. This is a text that I think helps to recalibrate us. It's pretty succinct. So the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I broke it down by clause so that it highlights the meaning and the purpose of this text. So we are his workmanship. So uh, what we are is what he has created us. Whatever you are as a person in terms of your gifts, your abilities, your talents, all those kinds of things. <clears throat> those have been given to you by God. And that we take those gifts, those talents, those abilities, and we, we have the image of Christ overlay it on them. They, he perfects them. He makes them better. So we are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus so that there's this already and not yet thing that when we come to faith in Christ, uh, we, we, we take on the blood of Christ, and so we are in Christ in that way. But, but, and that's an already thing that's for eternity, but then there's this not yet part where we are trying to become more like Christ while here on this earth. And so... So the way that God has fashioned us ought to be, needs to be perfected over into the image of Christ so that we can do the good works. Now you remember John chapter 15 where it talks about the fruit in the vine and that the vines that are branches and the branches that have no fruit aren't connected to the branch, right? So there is this expectation, this outcome, where we have to produce or participate in good works so that we produce fruit. And if we're not producing fruit, then it's evidence, could be evidence, that we're really not connected to the branch. So... I mean, these are important questions to ask. Over the course of our lifetime, what kind of fruit have we produced from our workmanship, 
from the branch that we are connected to. If, if you had to list out, and I'm not talking about like, you know, I led 500 people to Jesus over the course of my life. I'm not talking about just that. There are all kinds of ways in which godly fruit can be produced. That, that's part of our workmanship. It's all kinds of ways. So what would we say? For we are his workmanship. He made us the way that we are. To be created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance. So you have this sense of God's providence. That, and I wish I had time, but you remember that, for some of you, that I used to get a whiteboard and I put it up here, and I would put lines across the board like this. Down like this, and down like this, and then crosswise. So it was meshed with lines, and then I put a little stick figure at the end of each line all the way down and stick figures up here. And I'd say that every time those lines intersected, you were intersecting with somebody else's life. And that when that intersection took place between you and somebody else, who you were, what you are, the gifts that you were given, you were supposed to exchange, to share in that intersection with that other person so that you made their life better. And they made your life, if they were a believer, better. And so you took what they gave you and what you've already had and you move on down this path called life and then you intersect with somebody else because you've been strengthened by what they've given to you. And they've been strengthened by what they've been given. And then there's this intersection between you and them. And you share. And you make them better. And they make you better. And so on and so forth. So that by the time you reach the end of your life, things ought to be looking pretty good. And there should be very little confusion about what your life was about and what you were able to do with your life in terms of purpose and calling. We can do this. And if we haven't done it so far, there's no reason why we can't start now. We can start now. And we can take the sum total of the things that we're less than fantastic, and we can learn from those and repurpose those, and God can turn that into something where we can share and we can do in magnificent ways, in the way that he calls us to. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, earlier in the text, Paul talks about walking in darkness. So here he switches, and so now we're walking in this thing that God has for us. So this sense of walking conveys the idea that we live in them, that throughout the course of our day, it's a primary component of who we are throughout the course of our day. 
so that we walk in these good things that God has called us to, to make a difference in our life and in the lives that people brings to us. We need this kind of constancy. This is the way forward for our own personal growth. This is the way forward for our ability to impact people's lives. This is the way forward for this church to grow as well. This is the way that we embrace the beauty of what God has made us. Now look, I know we all have our challenges here. I have mine. You have yours. Things that are a part of our life that are very difficult and painful for some of us. And so there's only a and so there's only a certain way that we know how right now to how how to be constant, how to embrace what it is that we think God has called those things God has called us to, to be, ways in which we can serve. I get that. So it's not like any of us here, if we want to change direction on some of this, can hear a gun firing and we're off at 70, 80 miles per hour. That's not going to happen. Most of the great battles that are won in life are the battles that begin with just a skirmish here and a skirmish there that you're successful with, and then you just begin winning some of these skirmishes, and over time, the collective effort of winning those skirmishes means that you win a battle. Do you ever hear that, that uh, I don't know, it's like a little parable, it goes like this. Uh, for the lack of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the lack of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the lack of a horse, the message was lost. For the lack of a message, the battle was lost. And for the lack of the battle, the war was lost. And it all began with a nail. So my encouragement to everybody here this morning is to identify that nail that you're missing. Identify the nail that you're missing. Now, there are probably other nails, and that's okay. But just find the one. And say, you know, I need to identify this area of my life where I need to be more constant with, more faithful to. <clears throat> and I'm going to, through the Lord, Fix that. And then once I achieve some success, faithful success with that, then I'm going to find some of the other nails. But right now, in order for me to win the war, I need to win a battle. And for me to win the battle, uh, I need a message <clears throat> to know what it is that I need to do. And I need a horse who's going to bring me the message. And I need a shoe that will allow the horse to bring me that message. And I need a nail that will keep the shoe on the horse. 
All metaphors end at some point, but you get my point. Because I don't want people to leave here discouraged. I want you to leave here inspired. I want you to believe here knowing that God will start with us wherever we are in life. That we don't have to go back and redo stuff before, you know, he lets us in or he loves us. No, no, no. God begins with us where we are right now. So if there's some things that we should and need to address in our life right now, then just, just do it. And, allow, and feel his grace and his pleasure as his spirit floods your soul and he accepts you and me where we are so that we can begin anew and start over and move forward with maybe just one area of constancy in our life. And after we sort of get that under a control, then we move on to another and to another and to another. And we grow and we enter into really a stage, a place of our life where there's just real joy a sense of confidence and this passion for being true to what God has made us to be in order to do what he has called us to. So here we are, part of the body. Everyone is here is different. Each of you have your own gifts. You believe that God has called you to this church and you are here because you believe God wants you to be here. Now, if that is true, then that must mean that you have some gifts, some abilities in your workmanship that the rest of us can benefit from. Now, understand that our ancient enemy does not want to see that happen. He wants this body to be severed from the head that is Christ. Or he wants a vital part of that body, the arm or their foot, to be severed so that it can't serve the body in a way that body needs. But what would it look like if this whole body was complete? And if all the appendages and all the parts of the body work pretty much in harmony with everything else. That light that would come from that body would be blinding to the people in this community. So, I just want you to know that for 18 years, 18 and a half years, I've been your pastor here at Conway Alliance Church. And on more than one occasion, wondered if the Lord had something else for me. But there's never been anything else. He's wanted me to be here. Now, maybe some of you are saying, like, are you sure? <laughs> I'm just saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is where I'm supposed to be. And I love being here. And it's very fulfilling to me and to my wife, Ruth. And we try most of the time to bring to bear our calling and our purpose here. 
But it's not just mine. It's ours. So I would encourage all of us then to consider carefully what the Lord has called you to, what his purpose for your life is, and for you to take passionate ownership of that and to live your life out with that passion and to allow your life to be filled with his direction and his purpose and pleasure and that we come together as a body of Christ and we figure this out and we move forward because God has prepared a work for us that he planned in advance and in his providence we are all here and this is his part of the body let's make it work <laughs>